The name's Bond. James Bond. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Grow up, 007. <laughs> this never happened to the other fellow. I'm the man. Every penny of it. So you put your money where your mouth is. It's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I'll do anything for a woman with a knife. And then he's bald with a dead up Kill Bond, now. To the right, to the right, to the right. Shocking, positively shocking. You get your clothes on, I'll buy you a nice trade. <laughs> it is 007, a James Bond podcast. An exciting episode coming your way today. An interview we haven't had an interview on the show since our 100th episode with Julian Glover. And so good is this interview, so big and exciting, is that it's just me. It's only Ben, your favourite host. Screw Colin, screw Noah, it is just me. And what makes this even more exciting and special is that it is with an author because I read a book. That's right, I read a book. I'm the only one who read this book. Colin and Noah didn't read the book. I read the book. So I'm doing the interview. Colin read some of the book, not all of the book, and Noah's read none of it. So I've read it in their faces. I can read. There we go. We've finally settled it. But in all seriousness, this is a great chat. Mark Edless is the guy's name. He is the author of The Lost Adventures of James Bond. Also wrote The Many Lies of James Bond, two fantastic books. And The Lost Adventures of James Bond been getting a bit of press out there in the James Bond community over the last 12 or so months, given the content of this book. This book goes into so many details about lost James Bond projects. Obviously a lot around Timothy Dalton's potential third and fourth James Bond films, where there has been talk about the potential we could have had of basically James Bond versus robots, James Bond versus the Terminator. Very interesting stuff. But outside of that aspect of the book, there's large sections on other storylines that we could have had or other media. In particular, and we'll talk a lot about this in this interview, there's a whole section devoted to James Bond Jr., which maybe doesn't really tickle your fancy if you're not a fan of James Bond Jr., but it's fascinating to learn just how serious this project was taken by everybody involved in the James Bond universe and also everybody involved in writing the scripts and everything along those lines too. So we talk a little bit to Mark about that. There's also Lost Plays. There was a potential Broadway adaptation of Casino Royale, a James Bond theme park ride that didn't happen. There's comics discussion in here with some very crazy ideas that were in some James Bond comics over the years. And we also talked to Mark about his interactions with a very favourite villain of mine, a very favourite actor who played a villain who also then went on to play James Bond. And also Mark has met four out of the six James Bond actors from the movies and we learn a little bit about how Mark came about, including a very fun story about how he met Daniel Craig. This is a great chat. You're going to enjoy every single moment of this. Here is our chat with author of The Lost Adventures of James Bond, Mr. Mark Edlitz. Very excited today to be able to talk to our next guest. Yes, the author of several books, a couple of them related to James Bond. Outside of that, uh, a writer who has appeared in many publications, including the Huffington Post, Los Angeles Times, even Empire Magazine. And 
a big fan of many things pop culture related, but this is a James Bond podcast. We're talking about his James Bond books. His most recent book is called The Lost Adventures of James Bond, which is a fantastic book going into a variety of lost Bond stories, everything from couple of Timothy Dalton films that we could have had, a lot of James Bond comics, there's even a James Bond ride, and even a James Bond play, which could have happened on Broadway potentially one day. I'm so excited to learn more about these, the process of writing the book, and everything else in between. It's a pleasure to welcome to 007, Mark Edlitz. Mark, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I am very thrilled to be here. Thank you. It's Exciting, obviously, for you as a Bond fan to sit down and think about things I'm sure that you can write about, all these different books and everything else. Your first book, The Many Lives of James Bond, was a great success. And then you came to this book, The Lost Adventures of James Bond. Was this something that you've always wondered about? You've sat on, you're like most Bond fans, and think, like, what would have happened if Dalton did a third film, a fourth film, and thought, well, I'm going to write a book on this and find out what I can about it? Uh, well, let's, let, let me definitely answer that, but let me go back a, a, a tiny bit, if I may. Uh, so I wrote a book called How to Be a Superhero, which was a, a book of interviews with actors who've played superheroes over the last seven decades. So it's like Adam West on Batman, Lou Ferrigno as a Hulk, sort of the, not, not the ones you suspect, not the superheroes you suspect, but, 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 but beloved ones. Um, and I snuck uh, James Bond into that book, even though James Bond is not a superhero. And I realized uh, that I really wanted to write a book on James Bond. And I, I felt like I had some sort of James Bond book in me. Uh, I'm a big fan of James Bond podcasts and, and books and magazines. So I, I really try to absorb it. And uh, for the first book, The Many Lives of James Bond, I didn't have a theme necessarily. So I in, I reached out and researched or interviewed anybody uh, affiliated with James Bond who I thought it would be interesting. And when I, I write a chapter at a time, uh, meaning I don't set out to, I, I do set out to write a book, but I don't know how to write a full book. I just go, I'm going to write, I'm going to concentrate on this chapter. When this chapter is done, I'll write the next one. Um, and so, of course, you go back and forth and, and check your work and give it a little distance and revisit. Anyway, uh, when I finished the manuscript for that first book, Many Lives of James Bond, it was about 160,000 words. My wow. publisher wanted about 80,000 words. Wow. <laughs> um, although uh, he, although they did give me a hundred thousand in the end. And so <laughs> Good I needed, yeah, exactly. So I needed some sort of organizing principle for the first book. And that became artists talking about their creative process in interpreting James Bond. How do you interpret James Bond when you're making a Bond movie, writing a novel, creating a Bond video game, et cetera, or writing a Bond comic? And so, and it, that also became interviews with actors who played James Bond in any medium. So that was films, radio, video games, television. I mean, you get all, all that, but this is sort of broad strokes. 
And anything that wasn't that had to go. And it turned out anything that wasn't that were these unpublished, unmade, unfinished, or forgotten Bond stories. And by, you know, uh, and so that was about 60,000 words. And so that became the genesis of the second book. Uh, but of course, I kept on writing, and that book ultimately became even longer than the first. Um, it's, I mean, so- it's a great read for, for, for a book that is over 400 pages long. I just mentioned to this off <laughs> I, I, I couldn't put it down, Mark. And this is the thing. It's ongoing joke on this show is that I can't read, but uh, it's... <laughs> I could read and I didn't want to stop reading because it really was there. So, I mean, did you find with the process of this, did you have a, a word limit or were you able to say to your publisher, like, hey, guys, like this one could be longer because there's more interesting stories. So can we have sort of a, a bit extra here to be able to write with? Well, they, they my publisher was uh, kind enough to offer me an opportunity to, to go again with them. Uh, this time I, I elected to self-publish as, as, a, as, an, as an experiment. So I didn't have any restrictions at all other than what I thought the book should be. It's fascinating to think the publicity around this book, of course, has a, a lot been around the, the Lost Dalton films, which we're obviously we'll talk about now, but there's so many other interesting, fascinating things about what you've uncovered. But it really is kind of one of those big what-if scenarios in the James Bond universe is what would a Timothy Dalton third film be like, potentially a fourth film that you discuss, because of all the issues we had between License to Kill and what ultimately turned out to, to Goldeneye. But was when you were writing The Many Lives of James Bond, was this some of the things that you were uncovering, that extra work? I mean, is, or has it kind of been a question to you that really the stuff you'd uncovered already, you thought, well, okay, this is that what-if scenario that people want to do, so let's explore that as well? Yeah, uh, good question. I've always been comp- – my, my favourite uh, period of James Bond – lore or my my biggest James Bond unsung answer what you know what is the big question for me is what would have Timothy Dalton's third film have been like and that's always been a subject of of great fascination to me and other Bond fans of course uh, I've always wanted to know because Living Day I love Living Day Daylights to me yeah. it's uh, a, a great uh, Bond film that was indicative of the Bond films that they were making at the time. It's to me, it's classic Bond. It, it, it fits in with, with all the previous Bond films. Uh, License to Kill was obviously an attempt to do something different. It's, you know, we say grittier, we say more violent, we say more realistic, more, you know, et cetera. Some say closer to Fleming, uh, but they're so different. And his performances are slightly different in each. In, in, in there's a he's I love his performance in Living Daylights because it's it's all the colors that you want to see in Bond. In addition to ruthless, he's also romantic, charming, light, and, and I think funny. Um, and because of the nature of the revenge aspect of License to Kill, there's a little bit more uh, uh, anger. So the performance is is, uh, uh, tailored to fit the given circumstances of the script. But I always wondered, what would have that third film been? Would it have been more like License to Kill? Would it have been more like Daylights? Or would it have been something completely different? And so I just kept on researching uh, 
and trying to find out a possible answer. And, and the book uh, offers a, a few uh, unmade Dolan stories, I th about four in total. Uh, the, the, after uh, uh, License to Kill, uh, uh, a writer by the name of Alphonse Ruggiero was hired to write the next Bond film. Alphonse, you know, the, the one thing that when you read about Alphonse Ruggiero and Bond 17 is they say, we say he was Miami Vice and there was speculation that because Miami Vice, which is a TV show about cops in Miami frequently taking down drug dealers, there was a thought that his version of Bond was going to be drug dealer related. And the reason that that script did not go forward is because, there's a, you know, there's plenty of drug dealing stories in, in uh, Dela, uh, excuse me, License to Kill. But that's not the case at all. They really hired him because he needed, he worked on another show called Wise Guy, uh, which was a early Sopranos type show, mm -hmm. which was serialized as opposed to one-off stories, which were more common at the time in television. Uh, the, the, you were, the, all, even the villains were as interesting as the good guys, and he was a quick writer. And so it was sort of all of those things brought together that made them hire him. And tracking him down was, I don't remember how long it took, but it, 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 it took about a year of, wow. of first just tracking him down and then one tracking him down. And after he agreed to be interviewed, setting up a time for that interview, that, that whole process was easily a year. And when I called him, we eventually said, you know, I'll speak to you on this time on this day. And when I called him and he picked up, the first thing he said, are you surprised that I answered? Which was his <laughs> very good natured way of saying, yeah, I know, I guess, I guess this is taking a bit of time. But he really answered all, or I say most of my Bond 17 questions. And he wrote with, oh, he talks about two things in the interview. One, he talks about the process of physically writing the script with Michael Wilson. You know, the, their creative process of getting together and, and uh, Michael Wilson would, would bake bread for the two of them. Yeah. And go on walks and talk. And I just loved how that sort of day-to-day -day insight into their writing process. And then the other thing he did is he answered a lot of my questions about what they were going for. And I think that the biggest misconception about Bond 17 is that it was gonna be Bond versus the Terminator. <laughs> so what that means is that there, that there was a character the, 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 the rumor about Bond 17 is that there's a fully robotic character like the Terminator who, and that's sort of the focus of the film. And it's true that there is a character who is, uh, has robotic features, but maybe they're a just fembot, a man. basically. A fembot, thank you, thank yeah, you, yeah. thank you. Um, but it's not explicitly spelled out if if, uh, if 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 that character is enhanced or a complete android or 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 what, and I think they were just going to keep it. A, I don't think they were ever going to tell the audience. They were going to make it one of those fun little Bond mysteries, like in *Live and Let Die* with Jeffrey Holder's character. He seems to die more than once. Yeah, exactly. And they never really explained that. I mean, you get it from the context of the story that maybe maybe there's a little bit of. Uh, mystical magic that keeps yeah. him alive and 
But do they ever really spell it out? No, they just, you know, it's one of those things that it's, it's a fun little mystery. And I think that this character would have been a fun little mystery. Now, it's also important to remember that this character was not, was just one of many, many different elements in, in, in the script, and it wasn't really focused on her. Uh, but I think they really wrote a, a fantastic, uh, serious techno thriller. Uh, and, and I'm really sorry that that one didn't come to pass. It, it's a great way of putting it that way because, yeah, on paper when somebody says to you, oh, my God, this is what they were planning to do, it, it sounds batshit crazy, and you're thinking, like, oh, my God, Bond would have jumped the shark. But the way I like to look at it is we recently did our big recap of No Time to Die, and if you kind of put some of the things on paper for that without seeing the movie, you would also probably think it's crazy. Bond attends Blofeld's birthday party, and there's an eyeball going around the place which Blofeld is trapping him to kill him with gas that will only kill him and his DNA, while robotic micro-bots will go in his blood and help kill... I mean, like, all of that sounds batshit crazy if you see it without context. So this is definitely one of those things where it kind of feels that way. Just when you track the guy down, and as you said, it's such a process... I mean, is that the most satisfying interview that you can do in a book like this? Because I know what it's like when you're trying to track people down and after a while you finally get them on. It's a great feeling. So for you, a year's worth of tracking him down and getting him to agree to a time and get the information you got, that must be very satisfying. Yeah, that that was one, that was, that was one of the greats. When, so, I, you know, I, there's so many wonderful books on, on Bond. There's so many different wonderful podcasts and magazines that you try to – that I tried to offer something that a reader wouldn't get elsewhere. You know, that, that when I do one of these books, whatever I'm working on, I'm trying to offer something that the reader wouldn't necessarily find elsewhere. And I thought with this book, that was one of the things, you know, I, I, and in each book I solved like this mini bond mystery. Um, even that's a big, I call that a big bond mystery. Yeah. Um, what would Dalton's third bond have been like? And we get to his fourth in a second. But um, in one of the books, oh, here the, the man, who, the many lives of James Bond. So Bond has been on radio, yeah. Uh, and the first radio show was the first ever adaptation of Bond in any medium other than comics was a South African broadcast of Moonraker with Bob Holness as James Bond. And I never understood, first of all, I didn't understand, there was no context to that information. And as a very small point, nobody knew what year it took place. You know, there was rumors as 56, 57, 58, 59, but nobody ever really knew. And I was able to track down, uh, I, I, I give the reader two things there. One uh, was something which I did not do, but uh, was a generous Bond fan gave me. Uh, Brian, who runs a uh, website called the Bondologist blog, uh, conducted a written interview with Bob Holness, who gave his most complete telling of uh, playing James Bond. And he answered all the questions that a fan would want to know. And Brian very generously allowed me to... uh, put it in the book. So everything that Bob Holness wanted to say about James Bond is in that book. But the other thing that I did is, 
and this is small, but it's big for me, is I was able to solve the mystery of what year that took place by, uh, I, I got the contract, of uh, Bob Holness's contract that he signed to play James Bond. And it's got the date of the production, the number of rehearsals, how much he was paid. Um, and I also interviewed his daughter about it and she filled in all the other details. So I felt That's like that is something that I was able to offer the reader that they couldn't get anywhere else. And then for this other book, the second one, The Lost Adventures of James Bond, there's another Bond mystery. And it's who wrote the children's book, uh, 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 003 and a half. What, what's the correct full title? Yeah, of there was the, the um, sort of like the precursor, like a James Bond Jr. style, 003 and a half from right, like exactly. the 60s, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, it, it the, the name on the book is R.D. Mascot. But what's funny about that, because it's a pseudonym, is that usually when you write a pseudonym or use a pseudonym, you don't tell people you're using a pseudonym. Hmm. Um, but when you open the book, it says, R.D. Mascot is a pseudonym for a well-known British author or something like that. <laughs> so you're like, why did you use the pseudonym? And why did you uh, reveal that you've used the pseudonym? So I was yeah. able to track down uh, and so for years, nobody knew who wrote the book. It's always been speculation. A lot of people thought it was Roald Dahl, um, the, the children's author who also wrote the screenplay, You Only Live Twice, um, but it's not. And I was able to track down and find out the true identity of that Bond writer. Uh, and so that was fun to solve that Bond mystery. You're James Bond yourself, Mark, basically. You're just you know, you're going around <laughs> finding all this this information. One thing I just wanted to quickly touch on, which you revealed sort of in, you know, the plot of, of I think it was Dalton's uh, Bond 17 of Bond's third film, uh, Bond was meant to go to Canada. He was meant to go to Vancouver. And now... Colin's obviously not with us today, and we, we often have an ongoing thing on this show about where will Bond go to first, Australia or Canada, two places he's never been. I just I had to point this out that Bond was meant to go to Canada finally in Bond 17, and, and they cancelled it. So, um, I mean, is it surprising that you kind of, when you read these sort of plot treatments and things like that, where they were going to go to places that Bond hasn't been before? And obviously some things you touch on that you could argue they've used in future Bond films from that point on. When you look at something like a location, all jokes aside, are you surprised that they maybe didn't use that? Like, let's go to Vancouver, let's go to Canada or a random place because it's always about the exotic locations and maybe Canada's not too exotic for a Bond universe. Yeah, no, you're, you're right that some, sometimes the locations drive the plot uh, where they'll do a location scout and they say, oh, we're the, we've, we, we have access or the ability to be at this wonderful, unique location. Let's come up with a, a plot or a reason that Bond's there. Uh, because, and you know, you even see it with the, 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 the chase sequences. I mean, there's not necessarily a good reason for Bond to drive a car versus a motorcycle versus an airplane. You know, he's being chased. So what are you going to put him in? Sometimes it's, what are you going to put him in differently, in a different vehicle than he's been in? And in one of the books, I try to, I make a list of all the vehicles that James Bond has driven because his ability to, to know all these different skills of piloting and driving and flying is, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and they actually, the, the, this is off topic, but the, 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 Christopher, the, the writer of the Mission Impossible films has learned that and now he says, 
let's do, I will, instead of trying to find a location that matches my script, let's show me a cool location and I'll write the story around it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, it's, but it's, it's all like that, I guess, times have changed in the fact that obviously when you're watching a Bond film in the 60s, people back then are not able to turn on TV and see Jamaica and the Bahamas and Japan. You know, this was a, a unique thing. Whereas nowadays we're obviously very spoiled for choice and people can easily travel to these places unlike they could back then. So it's a little bit different, but I mean, we, again, on no time to die, we recently talked about how the locations in that were absolutely stunning, you know, to see. Oh, I completely like agree with you. Norway returning to Jamaica, you know, it's just, it's things like that. But we'll get to Canada one day, surely. And maybe Australia. <laughs> Who knows? The, the thing that I found really interesting about Dalton's Lost Films is, yeah, all the talk can be about sort of some of the, the more crazier things, you know, the robots, artificial intelligence, cowboys, things like that. But oh, yeah, yeah. I think what really <laughs> struck me in what, would have made it interesting is that the character sounded really developed and sounded really interesting. Like the bong girls, the villains, everything along those lines. And it just, I don't know if that comes down to any film treatment when it's just being put on paper, when it's been scripted is that's what they're going to sound like. And ultimately it's going to come differently on screen, but it honestly sounded like we've missed out on some really good characters. Did you, did you feel that kind of when you were yeah, discovering the information about Yeah, it? I mean, I agree with you on both counts. Whenever you read a, an outline or a treatment, they're, 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 they're usually dreadful. I mean, they're just, you just, because they're not meant to be read as enjoyment. They're meant as a tool often to communicate to other people in the creative party, often people who are paying for the film that the, or, or who are going to, say, go from treatment to script. Um, so they're not meant to, they're not meant for that purpose. They're not meant to draw you in necessarily, uh, only other than to say, draw you in enough to get approved to go to the next level, which is a screenplay. Hmm. Um, but with all that in mind, these, and so in general, these things are dry. I think they these really did show, I mean, just terrific writing. And I think that they did draw these characters uh, and, and pulled you in so absolutely yeah and it's also a case of the tone of the films like it's sort of there was a line there where it was almost sounding like you were kind of going a bit more comedic and Dalton sort of you know see how we would have done that but then there was sort of that whole area about Dalton portraying a bond who is over it he's older you, you know he's yeah. the too old for this shit kind of mantra from the from the late 80s which it's fascinating because so many people talk about, I know Colin, for example, not the biggest Dalton fan, but he's always said he would have loved to have seen a third Dalton film to see where he would have lied with that. So, I mean, how do you think that would have lived up to things, even if he had just done 17, if, you know, 18 didn't work out? How would have that worked in terms oh, yeah, of so, his betrayal? So what or? you're referring, for, your, for, your, for the listeners, what you're referring to is the set, second iteration of Dalton's third Bond film. So, which is to say that... Uh, after they they had this Alfonso Ruggiero Michael Wilson script, uh, Alfonso said that he that they made that into a screenplay. But then after that, two other writers came on and took some of the same ideas that were in that pr previous script or outline, and then turned it into what I think is a whole other new thing. And in this version, it's 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 an action comedy. It's not a sophisticated thriller like the other version. It's an action comedy. And in this action comedy, with as much emphasis on the comedy as action, 
you know, Bond is feeling like he's lost his mojo. And so the whole movie is about him getting his mojo back. And often Bond is plagued by self-doubt and he says, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, and when he does something spectacular, you know, he turns to one of the characters and says, oh, my gosh, did you see this? I, you know, I jumped from the plane. I landed in the pool. I'm, it's spectacular. Uh, so, uh, so, but it's all treated with, with humor. And there's this one sequence which, uh, where Bond is being chased by the bad guys at a rodeo. So he dresses up as a, as a, as a cowboy or, you know, and seeing Dalton in a cowboy outfit, it might sound terrible, but it, it's kind of wonderful. Uh, this, this wonderful artist, Pat, um, yeah. it, because so when you have a book, people always, you know, they want images, but you can't show an image for a film that was never shot. So Pat drew these images from the film that could have been including Dalton in a cowboy hat. And, and you know, outfit, which is from, from it looks fantastic. It, it, it really does kind of visualize it. I think it would have been so fascinating because we've talked a lot about Dalton's other work outside of Bond, and that he's kind of really found a niche post Bond as almost a comedic actor. We we did a recap on Beautician and the Beast. We had the director on Ken Quapus and kind of talked to him a lot about how you know, did you kind of untap this comedic element to Dalton that maybe he hadn't seen before and he hadn't really thought about it that way? So it would have been really unique to see Dalton do a bit more of a comedic bond. I mean, I, I'm with you. I think Living Daylights has a lot more funny elements to that than people ever give it credit for. But I don't know. Like, I don't know if you've watched much Dalton outside of Bond and seen some of more of his comedic stuff lately, but he's got a good He's got a good thing for comedy. He's discovered Oh, that. absolutely. When you look at uh, the... the um, what, what's Hot the, Fuzz. What's, uh, Hot Fuzz, thank you. Yeah, yeah. He's Even the Looney Tunes, Mark, like Looney Tunes yeah. back in action, Toy Story, you know? <laughs> oh, in the Toy Story he's in and, and then yeah. in the Penny Dreadful, which is not yeah. so funny. Um, well, it's darkly funny. He's great. Yeah. No, I love Dolan. I mean, he, he, you know, you always talk about an older Bond. He, he, he would be great, I think. I think, I think he'd be, I think he'd even enjoy playing it more than he did that. And the thing about Dalton is that I think there's a little bit of a misconception about, I hope this is not off topic, but a little bit of a misconception about him. He took the role seriously and he prepared for it seriously. He went to back to the books uh, and he treated it as seriously as any other material. The thing he didn't like was, you know, promoting, you know, and that's an important part of the job, but that wasn't his favorite part of the job. Pierce Brosnan says that being uh, James Bond is like being an ambassador to a small country. And I think that's true. And so as important on, for better or for worse, it's just as important to go out and spread the word about the film as it is to make the film. And, but, but you know, you're also dealing with sort of the same silly questions over and over again. So, but you know, but anyway. it's, it is one of those things we've talked a lot about sort of each of the actors and, kind of how they do, I guess, promote or talk about it. I mean, we've always talked about, obviously, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan kind of seem to be very open about it. George Lazenby, of course, whereas, you know, Daniel Craig kind of, I think now that he's stepped away, probably, will, you know, maybe go into the Connery categories and the Dalton categories of talk to me about anything else but Bond. Like, I'm a lot more than than Bond when it, when it comes to that. The other thing, the other sort of angle from a Dalton film, which I never even knew was a potential, was sort of the living daylights was very much going to be an origin story. This, this could have been sort of 
what we right. would have had, yeah. similar to what we had with Casino Royale, which, again, the treatment was was fascinating. I mean, I, was I, that I, something that was widely known or did you kind of un, un, discover this, essentially? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I didn't know so much about it. Um, for all these things, I didn't know so much about it. And part of the reason I was doing this was to learn. Uh, and so I love, so the origin story is so interesting. Uh, it's, you know, people say Casino Royale is sort of an origin story. I don't know if I completely buy that. Um, he's just a, sort of, that, that's obviously the first book. And in the movie, it's his first mission. But uh, so he's an unformed agent. But I don't know if it would, if I would completely classify that as an origin story in that the, this, this, other iteration that Richard uh, Maybaum and Michael Wilson wrote together was a pre-007 Bond. It starts off where Bond is not James, which is not 007, and he's sort of a lost soul who's carousing and enjoying life, but you could see that he's also finding it empty. And he gets brought into the Secret Service, and you see him go on an admission with a, an established agent, and that agent teaches him the ropes, but he also gives him pointed advice that will carry over to Bond's other adventures, you know, about, um, you know, just, just practical advice, but you could see it, it, it forging Bond's character. And that that script, as it ended, would have had Bond going to his Doctor No mission. So yeah. it would have taken place right before. Which is it's interesting to think too that when I was reading that is obviously we know Pierce Brosnan was very close to being Bond back around the Living Daylights and everything that happened around that. So. It would have been intriguing because I don't know if you ever watched The Living Daylights and think, well, how would Brosnan be in this role versus Dalton? It would have been interesting to think if there was an origin story, if that maybe was written with Brosnan in mind rather than Dalton, how that would have turned out. Because some of, like, you mentioned the elements about sort of being, I guess, taken under the wing by an older 007. Obviously, we know with Goldeneye, initially that was written with Trevelyan, with Anthony Hopkins in mind, kind of almost like a mentor. So you wonder if, like, they used that element from writing it for Brosnan, kind of turned that into Goldeneye, and then kind of things like that. It's it's interesting to think about those parallels there. Yeah, yeah. You know, that is fun to think about. And the problem is, as outsiders, is we don't know. So we'll Mm. see elements that are recycled. In a couple of these stories... There is a villain who is um, impotent, and so, but but the by different writers. So you wonder, oh, I wonder if someone had this idea for it, and they suggested it to writer the writer, and that's where it came from. So it was literally, let's try this, and that's often the case in series where you have an idea for a character that you're like, I want to keep on trying, I'm going to keep on trying, and it never works. And then sometimes writers come to the same idea at the same time separately. Yeah. And it's, I think it's important for us to allow that to have been a thing too, where like, you know, sometimes I'll see something in one of these, let's say, you know, unmade stories and you'll see it later on with Brosnan or even Craig. And you're like, and, and I wonder, 
did they, I don't know if anyone really showed any of these writers these other drafts or these other outlines, or if, even if they wanted to. Sometimes there's reasons that you don't give a writer previous work because then you are obligated to uh, the first writer. The first writer um, gets the most protection in in, yeah. in the writers guild. So it, you you know it's one of the things that we should always keep in mind when we're thinking about these things is we're also looking at people's th thought processes at one moment in time. Uh, so sometimes you write a script or put it down in an outline as a, will, as a question, will this work? I don't know. Let's try it out. Uh, and so many of these things do work, but uh, we should, I, I try to be uh, mindful that, if we didn't see it down the road, maybe they too thought it didn't work. Maybe this idea of a, a bond who's plagued with self-doubt, as is in, in one of the iterations, is not something that they wanted to explore. And then maybe Mike Myers discovers things, reads, oh, Fembot, I'll use that in an Austin Powers movie. So, hey, <laughs> yeah, you know, it kind, of, it kind of works along those ways. Obviously, a lot more in this book outside of the, the Lost Timothy Dalton films and a couple that I wanted to touch on. I, I was so fascinated reading all the information you did on James Bond Jr. We, we've covered the pilot <laughs> on this show and, you know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting journey. But I, I don't know, again, if there's really been much written on the history of no, it. It's, it's, it was so interesting learning about ev and how seriously it was taken because it's obviously something often mocked by Bond fans, but, like, this yes. was a big deal for everybody involved and Eon and, and the Broccoli put a lot of effort into this show. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you took that away from it. And, and yes, I think that, that, that my book uh, has the most comprehensive account of James Bond Jr. Uh, for, for, for some, perhaps too much, uh, but yeah, they took it really, really seriously. They weren't, I, I don't, I'm not, I didn't give it, I gave it a lot of um, book space uh, and, and, and research, not necessarily because I thought it's good or bad. I don't concern myself with it, whether good or bad, but, I'm, but the book is about intent. Hmm. Uh, and their intent was to make a, a, a nuanced uh, cartoon about James Bond's younger days. Now, what came across might not have been that um, or wasn't that, but they really put all their effort into this. You know, this was co-written, co-created, I should say, by uh, Michael G. Wilson, Yeah. you know? And so you, uh, you know, so it was great to learn for me to learn about the process that they went through in writing that and creating that. I speak to the the, the people who wrote the scripts, the people who wrote the spin-off novels. I, I look at the the Bible. The Bible. So your 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 listeners probably know this. Um, a series Bible, or is sort of the film is the guide by which other people go by. To it's got character descriptions and it tells about the intent. And so, you know, one of their ideas was to have the James Bond Iris open the each show they try to structure it like a mini james bond movie they they wanted the the humor to be sophisticated they wanted the plots to be sophisticated uh they were not they weren't trying to dumb it down 
Um, and they put a lot of resources in this. There were video games, there were there were spin-off books, there were Marvel comics. Uh, yeah, they, they they threw the everything at it. Which and the Bible, the whole every person you talk to would talk about this and kind of these guidelines and even kind of I guess having to check sometimes like Ian what they could and couldn't do. But the thing that really fascinated me was kind of that insight into the world of animation. The fact that there was like sixty odd episodes that they basically write record put together all at once this isn't like a a tv show where you're putting episodes together over a certain period of time and you're going along this is all done at once and i'm like wow these animators they they have got a very busy damn job yeah no it's 60 it's 65 episodes uh i think from 90 to 91 uh and they were all sort of working on top of each other and so so i i I spoke to you know a bunch of, of the writers as i mentioned and I would say, oh, look, you're sort of doing, they would pitch multiple ideas to the same person thinking, you know, I could do a variation on a theme. Uh, so, and so, but they would, but they would, all those ideas would get approved. So if sometimes there were similarities, they weren't necessarily thinking that each idea would get approved. Mm. They would, they would, um, you know, just because they needed so much material all at once, they just said, yes, yes, yes. And off the writers went. Um, but the other thing about that is that all the writers took it so, I mean, they took their job seriously. They realized that they were a part of the James Bond franchise and that they were trying to, they were trying to do it to the best of their ability. The comic section again was very fascinating because I'll, I'll be honest, it's sort of not a, a medium of James Bond that I've really ever focused too much on. But people are talking about this book with the, the Timothy Dalton storylines. But I just want to point out to our listeners, if they've not read the book, some of the storylines that were involved in the comics. Bond fights a Yeti. Uh, there was a Scandinavian comic where Bond basically was connected to Star Wars. He came across the Millennium Falcon, I believe. And there was even one where he was involved with dinosaurs. It sounded very Jurassic Park that there were being dinosaurs brought back to life. So, uh, I mean, fascinating to learn all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, what did you take away from all your research and interviews about all the different versions of the comics? So, so Alan J. Porter, who is who's the leading authority on James Bond comics, has pointed out that there's been more original Bond stories in comics than there have in all other media together. Mm. Uh, so it's the, it's the largest source of Bond comics. And as such, I felt like it was important to investigate that a little bit. And a lot of the comics or are, are licensed by... Um, or most of the comics are, are licensed either by by you know by Ian Fleming Publications slash Glid Rose. So um so so there's there's all these wonderful licensed James Bond comics, and most of them are English language. Uh, there's also a, a number of them that have been translated from English to other countries, but most of them have started in the English language. But there's these there's so many great Bond comics if you're Spanish speaking. Uh, and if you're not, I try to uh, translate the good parts or or the most salient parts, a lot of them. And there's this one company called Zigzag, uh, and this great artist by the name of German Gabler, G-A-B-L-E-R, uh, who's a, uh, from Chile. And he wrote these James Bond comics that were both adaptations of all of Ian Fleming's novels and short stories as well as original ones. 
And so these are these are as faithful adaptations as you can get, you know, in in one comic book, including the short stories, as I said. So, but he also makes up his own stuff that is perhaps not quite as faithful to Fleming as his other stuff, but it, it, it it's 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 delightful. You know, there's in one Bond battles a Yeti, you know, like a yeah. Bigfoot type creature. In another one, Bond wears a bumblebee costume yes and takes flight with a group of other uh, of these crooks who also wear bumblebee costumes yeah um it, i mean it's it, in another one he goes surfing yeah and what's Which great about sean connery's these, likeness too wasn't it that, that, that's yeah. what i was about to say what's great about these is that it's sean connery's likeness through all of these comic books yeah. so you see sean connery in stories that are not normally associated with Connery. For example, it's Sean Connery in Moonraker. It's Sean Connery in The Spy Who Loved Me. And this it's The Spy Who Loved Me based on the uh, the Fleming novel, not the film. So it's 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 wonderful. It's it really was fascinating. I just I was blown away by some of the ideas that that were out there. Did did you have a favorite of all the ones that you kind of discovered? That I, I you... mean, Bond versus a Yeti is it's <laughs> it's hard it's hard to type that to top that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a film treatment. We want to see that. Idris Elba in, in Bond twenty six <laughs> battles a Yeti. I think we'd kind of be uh, excited for that. Uh, some of the other you did sort of a lot about. Choose your own adventure style Bond oh, yeah, books, yeah. which I mean, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen No Time to Die, like precursor to some of the stuff that happens in that. But the one that fascinated me about that was R.L. Stein wrote a Bond book, yeah. which is yeah. something that I don't know if anybody knew. The Goosebumps guy wrote a Bond book. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are these, when A View to a Kill came out, uh, they, they, there's this company who would do these find your fate books, these find your fate books are similar to, as you're saying, choose your own adventure. If you want Bond to shoot the guy, turn to page 77. If you want him to run away, turn to page 42. And the reader controls Bond's fate. Um, and th so there, there, there's four of these. And as you're saying, L. Ron, L. Ron Stein, um, who gave, who I did a very, very, like a, a quick, like a one sentence interview with him, only because he didn't re remember that much. But he wrote one of these, which is incredible. And they come with, um, this incredible artwork uh, by these artists who, who uh, these the, the artwork on it looks like the a, a Roger Moore James Bond movie that you never saw. I mean, mm. they're they're just they're just wonderful, um, and it was, they're just a, a weird. Uh, they're just not not you don't, you don't I didn't expect to find a choose your own adventure style James Bond book. Yeah. Uh, and there's four of them. Three of them are adaptations of certain elements of A View to a Kill, uh, meaning that they narrow in on one, one confined area of the movie, for example, the horse racing. But one is, but one is essentially an original story. Another one that really, again, found me so much stuff about it that fascinated me, the bookmark, but was the ride, the, this kind of ride that existed in the late 90s uh, that you could put you in like a James Bond experience. And the again, similar to what I was saying about James Bond Jr., the effort that they put into it. I mean, the filming of this sort of film sequence, they, they got Judy Dench involved, Desmond Llewellyn. Like, they, they put a lot of effort into this. Why didn't this last? This is something that I would travel to to experience. It sounded amazing. Right? It sounds kind of great. So the, the James Bond ride had two distinct parts. 
there's the part where you wait in line and you get to a certain space and they 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 sort of killing time before you go on the actual ride but it's it's an original film uh as as you say starring judy dench as as am and desmond llewellyn as q uh, where they tell the reader, excuse me, the, the the ride goer, the instructions of the ride, and they sort of set the scene and set set Bond on his mission, um, and that was written by Bruce Feirstein, who, as everyone knows, wrote a you know three Bond movies or co-wrote mm. three Bond movies, mm-hmm. um, and then the ride itself, the, the conceit of the ride itself is that you are seeing the world through James Bond's eyes, so the, it's a point of view movie where you where you know you never see bond you might see his wrist or his arm or his hand as he outstretches for something but you're seeing the the whole movie is structured from from his point of view and it just you know there's explosions and mayhem it just it sounded incredible and it is something that is surprising that didn't stick around or kind of maybe they they redo it i mean there's certain obviously thinking like the jurassic park ride for example kind of got its reboot with jurassic world and it just bond does seem like a franchise that would suit a ride quite well you know some sort of experience so maybe we need to reboot it maybe again bond whoever becomes the next bond and they can kind of bring all this back i don't know that'd be great it would be. Two other things that I wanted to touch on that, again, loved learning about. Uh, Raymond Benson wrote a, a stage play treatment of Casino Royale, which, again, sounded amazing. Again, in discovering everything that you did with this, somebody as esteemed as Raymond Benson who's obviously been heavily involved in, in the Bond franchise with some of his novels and, and sort of the books that he's written. I mean, is it surprising when you're discovering things like this that you think didn't take off or didn't kind of go ahead because it sounded very well crafted and like it was yeah. being very well put together. Yeah. He, you know, he, he says that that's really the only James, he correctly states that that's the only James Bond book or novel that could become a stage show just because as, because the novel is sort of self-contained, it's, you know, it's people in hotels, you know, people playing cards, people fighting, you know, um, and he, he had, ideas on how to stage all of it. And it is a shame that that didn't happen. But, you know, the other thing that I'm thinking about while you mentioned that is during the reading, there was a actor who played James Bond. Um, I think his name is Ed Clark. But so in the back of the book, I have a list. Like when you think of how many actors who played James Bond, what would you quickly say? Well, I'd obviously say six straight away for the movies, but I I love the number that you kind of came up with because it's very surprising. Yeah, what what is my number? Is it like twenty? It's over. Uh, yeah, it was, it's something ridiculous like that. And because like the the depth you go into it is like obviously you've got your movies, you know, your, your David Nibbins, you, you know, people yeah, like I that. Wish, then, I wish I remember the number off the top of my head, but I, but you I even I think you would include like obviously like you've got your your Oscar James Bond, uh, right. you know, and your TV commercial <laughs> James Bond things exactly. like that, which you kind yes, of add yeah. to it. Video game James Bond. Video, radio yeah. James Bond. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating. That. And speaking of Radio James Bond, love the chat you have with Toby Stevens. Oh, my I, gosh. Look, I, as you can probably see behind me, Die Another Day. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a weird fanboy of it. So, obviously, love him as Gustav Graves. But, again, a lot of people might not be aware that he plays James Bond in these radio plays and does a pretty good job with it. You mentioned there that... It's something that he doesn't really talk about too often. So how how yeah. tricky was it to kind of get Toby that, to open up about Bond? That, that took that took a while. That was another one of those that took a while. And then I was 
that's another thing where I felt like I added value to, for Bond fans by giving them something that they couldn't get anywhere, which is, to my knowledge, the only in-depth interview uh, with Toby Stevens about playing Bond in, in these many radio adaptations, which are fairly faithful you know, versions of, of Fleming's novels. And he's playing Fleming's Bond um, and he's, what, you know, he also narrates the books. He also mm. narrates a couple of Bond books. And what I think is kind of cool is that when he's narrating Fleming's, Fleming's books, it's one Bond. And his Bond on the radio dramas is a slightly different take on the character. You know, it, it, but so it was, I mean, long story short, I was, I was thrilled to finally, you know, get some information from him about that. The one thing I'll say I was disappointed about it, Mark, was, again, there was no, and you might have asked him a question and just didn't make the book, but there were no references to Die Another Day. I mean, I would have just been like, cool, you played Bond, but, like, talk to me about Gustav. Talk to me about Die Another Day. I'll be, I'll be the guy that's defending you in it, Toby. You've probably gotten so much shit over the years, but I'll be the one. Like, talk to me about Gustav. <laughs> yeah, no, he. that's why you should be people who are not necessarily warm to, to that version of Gustav Graves should check out these radio dramas because he's so good as James Bond. Yeah, and it's, it is kind of one of those fascinating things. I mean, I legitimately, you, you're looking at all these lists now, who will be the next James Bond now that Craig's gone? And he, Toby Stevens still appears on some of these. I think he's a bit old now, unfortunately, probably for the role. But I think some people think, well, he does such good in the radio one. Would we have a villain become James Bond, essentially? One fascinating thing, too, before, before we let you go, you've met, I believe, four out of the six actors who have played Bond on film. So I, if I'm not mistaken, it's only Connery and Dalton you have met. That's correct. That's Give correct. us a brief rundown of how you've managed to have these uh, experiences with four of the six movie bonds. I I, I, don't, I certainly don't want to overstate my connection to any of them. They were they were all brief and and in passing. I met Roger Moore a few times at a few uh, uh, events that I, that I only went to because I knew he would be there. Um, I worked on a movie that Pierce Brosnan was at, so I was able to spend a little time with him. Uh, and so that was kind of neat. And who else is there? Lazenby. Lazenby I met yep. for the for the interview. And I feel like there's one more. Craig, I love oh, your Craig Daniel story. Craig, I, I love when, this story. <laughs> I met Daniel. He he was going to appear at a Q&A of Knives Out. And so I I brought him my first Bond book and I presented it to him. And so that that was like a little thrill for me because he was he was very gracious about it. Which which can I just point out? You 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 <laughs> got yourself a front row seat and you kind of rushed the stage. Which I love that little <laughs> bit which he said. Which and like I loved your line when like you said he sort of graciously took it and how you would like to think that in in the car back to the hotel where it was that he maybe had a bit, bit of a flick through. Which it was just it's a nice little moment because I can imagine as an author when you're writing something like this and you get that opportunity to present someone a book like that, that you got to have that little moment of thinking like, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. In my, in my imaginings, when he got into the car, you know, he had this long ride, you know, this New York city traffic. He has to get back to another borough perhaps. And he's got nothing else to do. Might, might as well read my book yeah. <laughs> while, while he's in the car. Flick and, you know, it. yeah. And, and the other thing I should uh, uh, briefly say um, is that the, the cover design is by Sean Longmore, who did these two brilliant covers. And the interior art is, is by by Pat. 
And um, so th this, you know, this book is, 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 a, is a team effort. Um, and, 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 you know, and, you know, I have had so many Bond fans, you know, this is the thing sort of about Bond fans. I've had, you know, I mentioned Brian and his help. Um, there's another Bond fan named Jack Lugo who who gave me tips and, and and gave me and would read the book and said, oh, you know, move this over here. And he would give it, it, it wonderful advice. Uh, and so I think that the book is richer because of the Bond community. Um, and, it, and it certainly wasn't a so solo effort. Well, one quick thing I just want to add just on, on the meeting of the Bonds. Uh, obviously, sadly, Sean no longer with us, but uh, is there kind of like a bucket list thing now that you've somehow got to meet Dalton? Like, is there just, you know, if he's at an appearance, like, just a quick, like, hey, how you going, Tim? Like, good on you. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I would, I would love to make that happen. Yeah, we'll keep keep us updated. We'd love to. We'd love to learn the book, of course. Lost Adventures of James Bond. Amazon online. Uh, your website, markedlets.com, of course, as well. Many lives of James Bond available. Um, anywhere else people can check you out, Mark. Social media, anywhere else along those lines that people can maybe start today with what you got coming up. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds about right. Uh, Twitter. There's Mark Edlitz on Twitter. Just keep an eye on And you got any other yeah. plans for? Is there a third Bond book in the in the brain that you're thinking about potentially? I, I, I'm my next thing is not a Bond book, but I'm pretty far into to my next book, and right. then maybe there'll be something Bond after that. But okay. that, that that that'll be a slow. That's not that's not anytime soon. That's not anytime soon. Yeah, Are you, do hope, you want I to tease what your book you're writing at the moment, or is that a bit of a secret you don't want to give too well, much away? Not not quite yet, but I think I think at the end of the year I'll be able to I'll be able to put it out. Fantastic. Well, we'll yeah. definitely. It's about keep movie an franchise. Eye. I mean, I could say generally, it's about movie franchises and sequels in general. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So you've perked my interest already with that one, definitely. Uh, as I said, Lost Adventures of James Bond. It's a fantastic book. People buy it. Seriously, you won't be able to put it down. Mark, really appreciate your time on 007 today. It's been an absolute thrill uh, learning more about your book and uh, everything else in between. And big thanks for having me. Very grateful. <laughs> Massive thanks to Mark there for his time just learning so much about this book. Seriously, it is a fantastic book. It is it is more than 400 pages long, but it is worth every single page. And as I said, I couldn't put it down. This is me, the guy who can't read. I could not put this book down. It was so fascinating to learn about it. And again, outside of all the great Timothy Dalton stuff that we could have had in our third and fourth Dalton films, just everything else in between. R.L. Stein involved in the James Bond universe. Did you ever think you would learn that? But it's a fascinating book. And one thing that I definitely appreciate Mark saying there was that uh, Living Daylights was romantic. Can I just point that out to Colin and Noah if you're at this point? And in celebration of that fact, I'm going to play this. There you go. I, I have to play that because we did also talk about Die Another Day there briefly. We have got some great stuff still coming here in 007. I feel weird just being by myself. This is the first time I've actually been by myself on 007 that isn't basically a, a, an episode that I did on another show, the Shirley Manson interview that we played. This is Ben's time to shine, apparently. But our next episode will be our Daniel Craig era redux episode. We've obviously just done our No Time to Die recap, all six hours of it. Have you gotten through it? I hope you have. We've gotten some feedback on Twitter and we know that there have been some people who have sat through all of it. But of course, our, we have to recap the recap of the Daniel Craig era. So for maybe new listeners to this show who don't know what I'm talking about, when we did all of our recap films before No Time to Die, essentially as we got to the end of 
either the decade or the era, we would do sort of a recap just of that period. So for example, we did a 60s, a 70s and an 80s recap. Then we did a, a Brosnan era recap, sort of the 90s into the 2000s. And then we initially did do a Craig era recap, which covered, of course, Casino Royale through to Spectre. Now that we've got no time to die, and now that his tenure as James Bond has ended, we will do a redux, essentially, to lump in everything No Time to Die. So that will be our next episode. And from that point on, we've got lots of things in the pipelines, more rankings that we're thinking about doing. We really do want to do a Who is the Next James Bond episode. So that possibly will be very much in the pipeline as well. And some other great things that we do have planned in the works. So that is what you're going to hear on 007. If you do want to tune into the show more, you can, of course, subscribe to the channel on all our different podcast platforms, 007.wordpress.com or on social media. I'm being very formal. This is not something I'm used to being doing on 007. This is the joke show. This is where I'm the idiot. I'm getting abused. I'm getting yelled at. So when I'm by myself, I'm apparently very, very serious. But markheadlets.com as well if you want to check out where to get his books. And we are going to keep an eye on just what exactly he has coming out in the pipeline. I want to close out the show today with something that we didn't actually talk about in the interview. But one of the chapters involved in this book is that Mark actually talks about a lost version of Never Say Never Again. Now, when I say a lost version, I'm talking about the song, the lost Never Say Never Again song. Now, of course, Lani Hall did the song for the film Never Say Never Again. But there was another version sung by the esteemed Phyllis Hyman, which goes into detail in this book. Great work by Mark to sort of uncover the the writers behind this, why it wasn't chosen and everything. So we're going to close out with the Lost Never Say Never Again theme song. Phyllis Hyman, which I'm going to say, better than Lani Hall's version. Just my opinion. Thanks for tuning in here to Double Oz 7. Thanks to Mark for his time. My name is Ben, and I'm going to go play with some aliens, robots, and yetis.
Say me.